You're listening to Martin Wolf's podcast from the Financial Times. With a paper currency, expectations that the future price level will remain stable are an article of faith. Thus has Mervyn King, Governor of the Bank of England, recently defined the challenge of central banking. Confidence hangs, in turn, on the probity and competence of a group of fallible human beings. For the first time since the establishment of the Monetary Policy Committee a decade ago, that trust may be in question. Mr King defined the challenge in the same speech. Beyond the short-term forecasting horizon of up to around three years, inflation is, he said, the result of too much money chasing too few goods. It is then the result of an excess supply of money leading to soaring asset prices, excessive spending, a weakening currency and a burst of inflation. The UK has been here several times before. Is it here again? Quite possibly is the answer. Two pieces of data are now screaming danger. First, two years ago, the spread between 10-year conventional and index-linked bonds was 2.7 percentage points, 270 basis points. Since then, this has risen steadily to reach 370 basis points, implying an increase of one percentage point in the implied expected annual rate of inflation. The second piece of information is the soaring growth of broad money. As Mr King noted only this week, the quantities of broad money and bank lending are now around 14% higher than a year ago, rates of growth last seen in 1990, when inflation was more than 8%. Interpreting changes in the growth of the stock of broad money is difficult, and in the UK, extremely controversial. Many economists suffer from a visceral unwillingness to accept that the broad money stock has any significance for inflation. Even people who consider themselves monetarists focus on narrow measures of money, even though these seem unlikely to have any economic impact. This aversion is a bit of a puzzle. Both fundamental theory and experience suggest that broad money does matter. Over the past four decades, for example, the UK has experienced three big spikes in inflation in 1975, 1980 and 1990. A strong and above all persistent rise in the ratio of the stock of broad money to nominal gross domestic product preceded each. It is then a warning signal, but not a clear one, as Mr King also suggests. If credit becomes cheaper and more widely available, thereby increasing the stock of money, households will increase their spending on goods and services and on assets, both financial and real, and this will push up inflation, he said. But if they wish to hold more money in their portfolios, the extra money will have few, if any, implications for inflation. This is right. There have, in fact, been two spikes in the growth of broad money since 1970 that were not followed by rising inflation, between 1980 and 1982, and between 1995 and 1997. Both reflected structural breaks in the willingness to hold money. Monetary policy, then, is an art, not a science. The question is whether supply or demand now dominate. Mr King argues it is both. Credit supply has been easy, but low inflation and reasonably high short-term interest rates also underpin the demand for money. 
It is then the combination of strong monetary growth, which has been rising consistently since 2004, with higher inflation expectations that is disturbing. For the bank, moreover, this poses a deeper challenge than the host of external shocks of the past decade that it has successfully negotiated. The Asian and Russian financial crises, the stock market bubble and subsequent burst in 2000, the terrorist attacks of September 2001 and wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the rapid rise in government spending, the jump in oil prices and the surge in immigration. This, however, is a monetary development and so strikes at the heart of monetary stability. The credibility of the policy regime may now be at stake. The MPC must get inflation expectations under control. It will have to raise short-term interest rates until it achieves that aim. I am not recommending a return to crude monetary targeting, but the position will be far more comfortable when monetary growth falls back once again. True, the most rapid monetary growth is in holdings by other financial companies, rather than by households, but who imagines that these will never be spent? These developments also raise some questions about the process of selecting members of the MPC. It might be helpful if its members were just a bit more heterodox. Someone with the monetarist views of, say, Otmar Issing, the former chief economist of the European Central Bank, would be helpful. If Gordon Brown's new, more transparent procedure for appointment diversifies opinions on the MPC in this way, it could be very valuable. Yet that is tomorrow's issue. The existing MPC confronts a clear challenge right now. I hope it is not too late to avoid a destabilizing spike in inflation in the years ahead. But as Mr. King says, faith in the bank is all holders of sterling have. The MPC must do what is needed to preserve it. Thank you for listening. To read Martin Wolf's columns online, please go to www.ft.com forward slash wolf.